0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app, and we'll keep sharing great conversations like the awesome one that we have for today. I'm your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. I'm also an investor in and advisor to more than 30 AI-first companies. And as you know, a firm believer in the power of technology to make humans better. If you're passionate about changing the world with AI or maybe just looking for your next adventure, let's talk. Now we learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show. And the added bonus is you get one AI fun fact each week. Today's fun fact, the volume of stories emerging Touting creative uses of ChatGPT is uh, well astounding. <laughs> A recent Google search for ChatGPT returns 187 million web results and 14.6 million news results. One such story is from World Is One News, which reports ChatGPT is 80% accurate at predicting early signs of dementia. That headline intrigued me, so I uh, I read on. Here's how it worked. Researchers behind the ChatGPT study say because language impairment affects between 60 and 80% of dementia patients, programs that detect subtle clues such as grammar and pronunciation mistakes, hesitation in speech, and forgetting the meaning of words help determine whether a patient needs a full examination for dementia. Uh, fascinating read, interesting research, very interesting use of chat GPT. Expect many more stories like this one in 2023, and as always, we'll link to the full article in today's show notes. But uh, now, shifting to this week's conversation. This is one of my favorite episodes all year. Our third annual long, strange trip into the mind of a Silicon Valley legend. My friend Dave Kellogg is one of the best marketers, CEOs, tech provocateurs, and board whispers around. He was an executive at iconic companies like SAP, MarkLogic, and Salesforce, and uh, then he became an investor and a board director who's now an executive in residence at uh, Europe-based Balderton Capital. I could go on all episode about Dave's accolades, but I won't. In fact, I'll stop there so uh, we can prognosticate about 2023 and uh, maybe even evaluate how, uh, how we did last year. If you're not already, follow Dave on Twitter. He's at Kelblog, Kel, K-E-L-L, like his name, blog, B L O G, and subscribe to his blog by the same name. Without further ado, Dave, welcome back. Let's have you uh, get started by sharing an update on uh, your, your last year, uh, and uh, then we'll get into your, uh, your 2022 predictions. Hey, Dan. Yeah, look, first, thanks for having me back. Second,
1: I, I would say, you know, in a word, busy it's been a really busy year for me because a lot of companies are worried about go-to-market and they're worried about how can they increase the efficiency of their go-to-market models. They're worried about how to sail into headwinds for the first time, uh, which makes it harder. They're worried about growth because it's not like they can back off growth too far, right? The, the, The new problem statement isn't maximize profitability. The new problem statement is keep growing fast while showing signs of or path to profitability. That's much harder, Um, certainly much harder than growth at all costs, right? So people are realizing their economics don't make sense. People are trying to save money. That leads them to look at their P&L. Most SaaS companies spend twice as much on sales and marketing as they do on R&D. So they very quickly say, hmm, how can I increase the efficiency of my go-to-market model? So yeah, it's been keeping me pretty busy, doing a lot of advising and consulting.
0: What's it like being an EIR for a Europe-based VC firm. Talk us through kind of a, a day in your life these days.
1: Yeah, well, it's fun. You have to wake up early. I work at Balderton notionally a day, day and a half a week. But the reality of that is it's really like five mornings a week. I get over to Europe about four times a year. I spoke at Saster in Dublin, and I spoke at Slush in Helsinki, which is cool. And I like that, by the way. One of the reasons I took this job is is that I feel like I have kind of special skills having worked at Business Objects for five years in Paris as we expanded to the U.S. and having sat on some European boards. So uh, I feel like I know a lot about the challenges in helping kind of build up the U.S. from Europe. And and I like living there. So uh, I feel like I work well with European entrepreneurs, speak semi-reasonable French. and, And look, I help them by and large with the same issues I do here. Might be positioning, go to market strategies, sales metrics, SaaS metrics, pipeline management, board relations, right? But but in addition to the usual suspects, I'll help with a U.S. expansion strategy because that's a big deal for European companies. And look, it's a topic that American VCs and American advisors generally are just not qualified to advise on because they've never done it, and it's a it's a super important issue uh, for a
0: European startup. How has the European reaction been? to some of the global headwinds versus the reaction in
1: the US? Yeah, look, I I think, you know, to to paint with a broad brush that the Europeans are worried about being too European. (laughs) The the question I hear is, gosh, do you think we're being too conservative? Uh, The Americans seem to be in go, go, go mode. They seem to be less affected by these changes. But, you know, are we backing off too much? Are we tapping the brakes too hard, too early? And I hear that within the Baldurton companies I work with, and bear in mind, Baldurton does about, I'd say around a third of the portfolio, maybe 20 to 30% is uh, SaaS. So they do a lot of things beyond SaaS, but I also work with a bunch of companies outside the Baldurton portfolio in Europe. So I think, but across the board on both sides, the message is is generally, am I being too conservative? And, And to which my answer is go look at your leading indicators, right? Hopefully you have your your SaaS metrics act together. And if you do, you have leading indicators that you believe, uh, and they will tell you what you should do. Because I don't want you doing a layoff because your competitor is doing a layoff, right? I want you doing a layoff because when you look at your dashboard, it says your business is in trouble. And if you don't have such a dashboard, let's work really hard on getting one. So the next time we're in this situation, we'll have data. We won't be flying blind. And let's not, especially if we do have a good dashboard, let's not go take generic advice. All right. I don't want to cut because a VC showed up and told me to cut. I want to cut because I think my business is in trouble. Or maybe I want to accelerate because I think my business is going well. It's, you know, I was at the Sequoia Rest in Peace Good Times meeting in 2008, where one of the big partners came out and he said, I think this is verbatim cut, cut. Deeper than you could possibly imagine, and then cut more. Right. That was a quote. And it's like, wow, wow. That's, I remember thinking at the time that, you know, I was running a $30 million business that was in two verticals that really weren't that impacted or exposed to the 2008 meltdown. And the guy next to me was an early stage startup with no revenue and no revenue plan for two years. They had all the money they needed for the next two years. And I'm like, why are you giving us the same advice? Because we're very different businesses. And why are you telling us to cut? Because I don't think the guy next to me needs to cut. And I don't think I need to cut. Uh, I, maybe I should accelerate. But it was crazy. So, so that, that's what made me very wary of generic advice, like beware generic advice. Because as it turned out, the ending of that story was, I don't know, three to six weeks later, Sequoia gave me $15 million. After the big speech, <laughs> they gave me an extra $15 million and did an extension round because they wanted to make sure I still had money to invest in the business because our indicators did say it was going well. So I think the biggest risk is doing something because everyone else is doing it. So, And I think the Europeans generically are worried uh, about being too conservative,
0: but I think the real thing to worry about is not acting on your own metrics. Is the European tech economy silently cheering, watching the iron grip that Silicon Valley had on innovation and venture investment slowly erode and watching big five tech lose 60 to 75% of their market share. Is that, uh, how is that being met overseas? Yeah, you
1: know, that's a hard question to answer. I work mostly with early stage founders, you know, almost all are less than a hundred million in Europe that I work with. Uh, Most are less than 10. And I don't see any Schadenfreude, uh, you know, any, any joy in the other's misery coming from uh them. Look, maybe their their government might feel that way. There's certainly some big tech haters in European government. But the people I work with, they like the Silicon Valley model. They're trying to emulate the Silicon Valley model. It's one of the reasons they work with me, because I've worked both in Europe and in Silicon Valley. So I don't see people, you know, talking about comeuppance or such things. Uh I see people saying I want to be, (laughs) I want to be like, maybe not big tech, but I want to be like the the, the companies that we know and work with, you know, the the successful enterprise companies.
0: So in preparation for this discussion, I dusted off our conversation from a year ago and specifically your, uh, your 4,800 word treatise, your predictions for uh, 2022. And uh, look, I'm going to toss you out some softballs uh, because pretty impressive, I think, but as long as we don't go through the full list. So, the hype over Web3 will have crested during 2022. So, why don't you take a victory lap for that one, my man?
1: Yeah, so the way, yeah, boy, nailed that one, huh? I'd say that writing predictions makes you humble, especially when you have to write them down, right? I, I always love the Yogi Berra quote predictions are hard, especially about the future, uh, because they are and uh, I've made plenty of bad calls. But but yeah, it's fun when you get one right. Now, let me explain what I meant a little bit by that because Web3 means a lot of things, and it means different things to different people. So you might be surprised to know I still hold a pretty major position in Bitcoin uh, because I believe in Bitcoin. I'm a long-term buyer. I bought it a long time ago. Uh, I have some other crypto as well. Uh, So I'm not anti-everything. I'm not anti-blockchain. I think blockchain is actually a good technology. If you're building Bitcoin, (laughs) which is what Satoshi was doing, Um, and and I think proof of whatever is proof of stake is better than proof of work, so I'm happy to see that improvement coming. But I'm not anti everything involved with crypto. But you know, NFTs, uh, I bought some, I have some today. They've been crushed in value. Never really got it. DeFi always struck me as inherently flawed. Decentralized finance, meaning that if we use all this crypto, we don't need intermediaries. But if that's true, why did I buy all my NFTs on OpenSea and all my crypto on Coinbase? And why is Coinbase worth $50 billion if this new system doesn't need intermediaries? So there's kind of an inherent conflict in that message. My biggest beef in all this was just taking technologies built to do one thing and trying to kind of force them into use cases that were not obvious. So people trying to, you know, enterprise blockchain to me just was an oxymoron. Like, why do I need blockchain behind the firewall? It's built to be a public ledger. Uh, And if I have a firewall and it's my company, there's a thousand databases that are a thousand times faster than blockchain uh, for doing enterprise applications. So that was the part I also objected to go to the blockchain abuse, if you will. But, but yeah, anyway, it, it's certainly nice to nail one every now and then. And I
0: do feel all in that one was nailed. The disruptors in enterprise software will be disrupted. Yeah,
1: you know, I feel good, but not great about this one because the reality is it's more of a cycle playing out than a specific prediction. Right. The company I had in mind, you won't be surprised, was Salesforce, because you know I'm old enough to think of them as an upstart, you know, protesting or remember them as an upstart protesting at Siebel's user conferences and uh they're quite a different company today obviously um and you know, what, what's the thing? We become our parents, you know, uh, and, and Salesforce is becoming, and some might argue has become Oracle, right? And look, they were getting disrupted a decade ago when I worked there. You had Zendesk on the, you know, attacking Service Cloud, HubSpot, and in marketing and Core CRM, Freshworks, and all three. So it's not like, you know, Salesforce being disrupted, the disruptors being disrupted is entirely new. Uh, I do like it because I like the cycle. I like the fact that you can be a disruptor one day. And if you're not careful, you're going to wake up, you know, being disrupted. So. It it should keep everybody on their toes. Um, but the reason it doesn't, and, and this is a really interesting cycle in Silicon Valley, this is really the underlying point I wanted to talk about, is is I increasingly believe that there's just two types of managers in Silicon Valley, value creators and value extractors. Uh and let me use Google as an example of this. Um, you know, before Google, and there there was a before Google, uh you would use search engines like Alta Vista, Lycos, Yahoo. And they used an algorithm called TFIDF, Term Frequency Inverse Document Frequency, uh, to rank search results. And uh, it turns out this algorithm was highly gameable because you could just put a keyword. Basically, it was a keyword density algorithm. So if you just had a very high density of a certain keyword on a page, it would get ranked very high. Uh, to the point where, where search had become basically unusable around the time Google was launching And Google looked at this and said, you know, this is unusable. It's being gamed to death. The fundamental flaw is the ranking algorithm. So we're going to take a different approach. We're going to steal an idea from academic citation analysis and uh, do page rank. Uh, And it works spectacularly well. Um, and, And because... These basically Google's founders seem to love people who were searching for data and hate advertisers. So, we're going to put all the ads on the side. We're not going to let them be glitzy at all. We're going to make sure nobody ever confuses an organic search result with an ad. And we're going to make it easy to find and click through to other people's sites. In fact, in the early days, it had the I feel lucky where it would just take you directly to the other person's site, right? It would just take you to the first search result site automatically because their goal was to take you to other people's sites. L- look at Google today. It- it's totally different. They- the ads are mixed in the left column with the search results, and I often do confuse them. I have to scroll down fairly far on some searches to find actually organic results. Uh, the right-hand column is, is now typically will start with a featured snippet for a lot of searches, which is front-running. Right, They're scraping content off uh, often, but not always Wikipedia or maybe some blog, and putting that up on the right-hand side. And the net result of all this is that you now decreasing. I don't have the numbers on it, but I'm guessing a much much lower percentage of searches result in a click through that 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 you could actually get your answer off that results page, and uh, that's their goal. That's why they have people also ask. It's why they have featured snippets. Uh, it's you know, some you might argue why they have Google flights uh, at Google flights and Google shopping right they're all keeping you on Google uh, and, and therefore letting Google sell you more ads as opposed to taking you to someone else's site where they, where they will sell you ads so but my main point here is that this is represents a radically different philosophy from the original founding principles um, and it's because the company is now being run by value extractors right? Because they're saying, hey, there's an opportunity to get better click-through rates on the ads if we mix them with result. There's an opportunity to keep people on our site if we give them feature snippets. There's an opportunity to keep them on our site if we give them direct answers, or we give them people also ask. So that's what extractors do. Um, and what enables extractors, ironically, is usually the erosion of the values of the founders, right? <laughs> the, the creators apply a certain constraint and they show up and relax those constraints and make a lot of money doing it. Uh, they they also arguably ruined the company and subjected to potential disruption uh, in the process. Great example of that, would uh, be Amazon, right? Where if you search product search on Amazon, in my opinion, is completely destroyed. It's bombed out. It's worse than pre Google internet search knockoff brands. You search for one brand. I can't even find it in the results Sometimes, Not only am I seeing other brands, I can't find the brand I'm searching for. As the results are mixed together. Units are impossible. So if I want to buy one pair of socks, the least I can find is six. And there's no filter button to say, no, I just want one. You can't filter by real brands as opposed to knockoff brands. Um, and what's happening here is, is these are extractors who are are thinking, you know, we could basically sell more ads and get more clicks on ads and make more money by making all these changes. And They've completely forgotten the consumer in the process, right? And this is going to create an opportunity for somebody. It's bad and getting worse. The other example I had, I picked this one up off Twitter was just, uh, Somebody said it, I wish I could remember who, that they had a picture of a three-meter Apple Thunderbolt cable, showed the price, which was $159, and they said something akin to this is what happens when extractors run companies, right? When extractors run companies, cables cost $159. No innovator, no creator would do that, right? Because the creator is passionate about an idea and trying to make it happen. So when I made this prediction, ultimately, I was thinking about Salesforce as a disruptor. They clearly, clearly have been run by extractors, I don't know, for the past 10 years. It usually happens somewhere between $1 and $3 billion when the extractors take over. And they're doing what extractors do, increasing prices, uh, making bigger deals, making longer-term deals, acquiring more products to stuff in the Salesforce's bag to raise quotas, innovating less, caring less about whether customers get angry because we know we have leverage over them and high switching costs, Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so so they didn't have a great year. Uh, and I think it's because they're uh, they're being run by extractors and, uh, and it's, you know, that, that usually trades off growth.
0: Salesforce is a good example. They've had a rough month between uh, Brett Taylor leaving and Stuart Butterfield leaving. And we're taping this first week of January 2023. And uh, your former boss, Mark Benioff, just announced eight thousand layoffs. So, perhaps a company whose best days are behind them, another one that may or may not fit that category and related to another of your predictions, you said the metaverse remains meta. So, are Facebook's or Meta's best days behind them as well?
1: Yeah, look, I feel like the, you know, in SAT analogy form, I feel like metaverse is to Facebook as Watson is to IBM. Uh, and, And the underlying disease is that some companies, for unknown reasons, seem to get bored with themselves and their core business, and they try massive top-down pivots. Now, once in a blue moon, this is actually indicated. Like in the, I think it was late 90s, Bill, Bill Gates basically pivoted all of Microsoft with one email that said, we're going to stop investing so much in desktop software and put all our investments in internet software. And that was a good idea right? That was a good call, and it could only be done by such a pivot. And I feel like sometimes CEOs think, you know, they probably imagine themselves in that chair doing that pivot at the time, when in reality, they're not, right? Watson wasn't that. To me, Watson was grasping at straws to try and be cool and relevant. Um, IBM has done it before, like enterprise blockchain was another huge attempt by them, and they put a lot of marketing dollars behind it. But but for Facebook, now now called Meta, I don't understand this Metaverse focus. They're not a gaming company, and that's a big use case, arguably a beachhead use case for virtual reality. The vision they're painting is dystopic. Even if they could realize it, I don't think it's a place I want to go to. Like even watch their marketing videos. Like, why well, do I want a virtual me in a virtual world? Like how how dreary, how kind of ready player one-y is my world that I need to connect into this thing. And, you know, the, that only some folks can afford to have reality privilege or, you know, yeah, you know, the whole thing just seems very dark and unattractive, uh, the way they paint it. Uh, by the way, if you've never seen the Iceland verse video, I linked to it on last year's post, you have to see it. It's a a spoof of uh it's a Iceland tourism board doing a spoof of the Zuckerberg uh, Metaverse video. It's pretty hilarious. But but anyway, look, it doesn't look like Meta's doing it. It's it's a particularly dark vision, and they don't seem to be executing it well. They recently lost uh, a major leader on the initiative who who thought their execution was bad. So, you know, personally, I like companies that stick to their own knitting. Uh, I like Google's approach to innovation for what it's worth, the experimental approach where you don't pivot the whole company top down. You just try lots of stuff. And see what works, because because that's how these companies got big in the first place, right? They had an idea, they executed it at small scale. People liked it. They, they doubled down. They built again. But it was a very organic thing. It wasn't fifteen executives in a conference room in an all site saying we need a you know, offsite saying we need to pivot the whole company around thing X Y Z. Uh, and I've been in those offsites, and, and I've uh, <laughs> I've been part of those pivots that don't work. So um, yeah, I, I I do think the metaverse is going to remain meta and. uh, and I think they'll probably rediscover their roots in social networking uh,
0: in a year or two. A year from now, are we talking about Apple being the savior for ARVR where Meta failed? You know, look,
1: on Apple, I don't have a ton of opinions because I'm, I'm neither a big Apple fanboy nor a big Apple critic. You know, I use their products. I'm still grumpy at them for the UI when I get a phone call during a phone call. I still thank them every day for the grabbing authorization codes from messages. Uh but other than that, I, I don't have a lot to say about Apple in general. I'm a, yeah, I'm just not neither a fan nor a critic. But you know who I am actually kind of a bullish on for the metaverse is NVIDIA. Uh first they're an amazing company in general, uh a combination of strategy and luck, emergent strategy as it's often called, uh, where where GPUs would be awesome for AI ML. (laughs) Uh, That that was certainly very good to them and they embraced it, which is half the genius of an emergent strategy. And I think the same thing may well happen in the metaverse. Uh, Their their vision of uh, what they call the omniverse and digital twins and large-scale simulations, uh, I think it's a really good idea. I think it's really practical. I think they'll make a lot of money at it. So, So for me, and maybe this is more about me than the metaverse, I like that vision, and I like where they're headed. So, Apple, I'm not sure. Frankly, I don't like the
0: MetaVision, the Apple Vision. I'm not sure of, and I, but I do like the the Nvidia Vision. I had an unfair advantage of getting a preview of your 2023 predictions, and we said we would we would test market them on this on this podcast. So, for the first time ever, we're going to uh, take a random walk through some of your thoughts for uh, for the year ahead, and uh, let's start with this kind of open ended one. Uh, a year from now what is let's say the theme in silicon valley in 2022 was humility what's the theme that we're talking about uh, a year from now from 2023 that kind of best uh, summarizes the year in silicon valley
1: you know i feel like silicon valley or california in general has had these cycles since literally the gold rush (laughs) and uh you know what's the cycle gold gets discovered people show up to come mine it Towns get built, saloons and hotels get built in the towns, picks and shovel salespeople show up and sell everyone a pick and a shovel, and some miners get rich and some don't. The picks and shovels people always do pretty well, <laughs> uh, and everybody moves on to the next thing. Um, and that's a little bit what it feels like out here. You know, in the, in the internet bubble, that's what it felt like. Uh, the joke in the early 2000s was beat to cement back to Cleveland, right? So if, if you came here for the quick money, you can go back to Cleveland now because that's not here anymore. And, and to me, you know, I'm more of an old school Silicon Valley believer. You know, the I love the HP way, which is, you know, one of the one of the earliest companies in Silicon Valley HP. And they wrote a whole book about their culture and their beliefs. And that, to me, was kind of the blueprint for Silicon Valley, kind of a, a safe place for engineers to build high-quality oscilloscopes at the time or high-quality products for their customers without a lot of BS um, and, you know, and rational kind of data-driven decision-making. and And, and that's the Silicon Valley I like. Uh, not, not the quick money Silicon Valley. So I think so. I think this cycle is obviously now playing out. We're now in the bust phase. If I had to pick a theme for, for the coming year, I think it's down round avoidance. I don't know. It's not very ringy or catchy, uh, but it is what everyone's focused on um, because, look, there, there's people, if, if multiples get cut in half, it's pretty simple math. If multiples get cut in half, you have to double your company to earn your last round post-money valuation. And if you happen to have enough money in the bank to do that, power to you, right? I work with one Series B company that has $100 million at the bank. They they completely took advantage of the fundraising opportunity, um, and they very, very wisely didn't go burn all the money. They spent it very judiciously. I'm sure that earned them some nasty looks and board meetings, but it also earned them a $100 million bank account, and, and they can get through this thing just fine. Uh, I've worked with other companies that raised $100 million that have not in the bank, and they're in trouble. Um, and I've worked with a lot in between. So, But everybody is saying, how can I not do a down round, which for most people means, how can I double on existing cash? And that leads to a few strategies. One is runway, ext- primarily runway extension is the, the big thing. So you can see the other theme for 2023 is runway extension, meaning how do I make my cash runway longer? How can I go farther on existing cash so I can basically earn my last round valuation, but, and this is the constraint that makes it really hard, I can't sacrifice growth. It's not as simple as just saying, oh, I'll grow 20% with 20% EBITDA, so I'll have a 40 rule of 40 school, but you're still not really investable because if you don't have scale, 20% growth is way too slow to be interesting. So, So it's actually a much harder problem, and that's what everyone's focused on right now. And back to your first question, that's why I was so busy because it's actually a really hard problem. You know, there are some other ways to extend your runway. One, one is structure. I do think structure, I hope I hope structure is not a theme in 2023, but I know it will be talked about more where people do rounds with, you know, multiple liquidation preferences or, or other rights that enable them to keep the headline valuation, but give up e- basically either more pie at, at the eventual pie sharing contest or not pie sharing contest, but the eventual pie uh dividing contest at the end. So the theme is really going to be runway extension and down-round uh, down avoidance.
0: Remote work and virtual teams have taught us that innovation happens everywhere and that you no longer need to pay the Silicon Valley tax to build a transcendent technology company. Is 2023 a year when that's reflected in valuations and just percentage of deals done outside Silicon Valley, or is there still some pixie dust that we have here that can't be replicated elsewhere? You know,
1: uh, I think there's two questions in there, Dan, one is about remote work and one is about kind of the the hub or the headquarters hub of Silicon Valley. And look, I'm from New York. We'll do do the, well, actually let's get remote work off the table. I I, I think remote work is here to stay. Uh, I, I think, It's going to be a privilege. It might be three days a week, right, instead of five. uh, And you'll have to be in a good performance status and yada, yada. But I think there's enough advantages to remote work that companies are going to allow it. I don't think there'll be much potential to abuse it going forward. As labor markets have changed, you've already got lots of companies that get back in the office. And and they have to be careful not to over-rotate that way. And they have to be careful they're not doing it for the wrong reasons. Like, you know, we have empty buildings, therefore, come into the office. That's a terrible reason to do it. But I think remote work is here to stay. I think it will get more balanced. I think people will be required to come into the work sometimes as a function of their job. So so I feel good about that. And I do think it's good for Silicon Valley because now we can tap talent everywhere. And this is clearly already happening. uh, And we can basically do better with our cost structure. The more interesting question to me is about founding and headquarters and I always think of Silicon Valley like New York. You know, I grew up in New York and uh, there was a time where if you worked in financial services in the U.S., you pretty much had to work in downtown Manhattan like like when I was growing up. And a lot of things changed that. 9-11 was one of them. But but the industry has pushed out, right? First after 9-11, it went to Midtown, New Jersey. But then after that, these the same quality of life issues that affect Silicon Valley, cost of living, cost of housing, long commutes those things all happened in New York and, and the result was they opened hubs you know B of a moved to North Carolina a lot of a lot of financial services company opened hubs call centers, finance and accounting centers, sales centers and moved them right in other offices in major cities so I, I think it's a natural cycle so so I never freak out when people move out of Silicon Valley or people move non-core functions out of Silicon Valley. I don't even freak out when people move engineering out of Silicon Valley because frankly I think it's so competitive here it's too expensive. Right, So I don't want to have to compete with Facebook and Google and their RSUs to, when trying to hire an engineer. So I get it, uh, but I don't think it, on the flip side, I don't think it means the death of Silicon Valley in any way whatsoever. I think Silicon Valley is is the best place to found a company because it's where you have the highest concentration of second-generation entrepreneurs. It's where you're the best venture capitalists for the most part um, in the U.S. It's where you have... The best advisors, law firms, all the basically infrastructure, all the stuff you need around you, uh, is here. So, so my general recommendation is found it here, build your e-staff here. I do think it's important to have the e-staff to be co-located where possible or at least mostly co-located. And then, yeah, I start. you could start the company here, but even in your early scaling, you know, 5, 10 million, somewhere in those, you, you could start putting people in hubs because I love hubs too. I don't particularly love the everyone's spread everywhere. I mean, you could do it. Some companies make it work, but I think hubs are best of both worlds because you still have, you know, a few centers where people congregate and get to know their fellow employees and you can have a holiday party and you can have an all-hands meeting uh, or you can have a training and, and you can pull people together, but you don't have to pay everyone, you know, Bay Area wages
0: and subject them to Bay Area commutes. that, that I, I, I like pubs. Anecdotally on this podcast, in just the last couple of months, we've had entrepreneurs from various places in Eastern Europe various places in Scandinavia, and I'd say as a fraction of all of the AI-first entrepreneurs that we've had discussions with, it's the exception to the rule that they will be based in Silicon Valley. Is that just anecdotal, or or uh, is there something to that?
1: So I'm not sure. So, so first, I want to say, look, I'm more of a database person than an AI person. Uh, you know that. But I will say, what I do know is you can certainly, you know, clusters... Clusters happen, and they typically happen around universities, right? I think two things. One is a university, and the other is just an experienced startup ecosystem, right? Because if there's a bunch of experienced startups, people quit, or successful startups, people quit and start their own. (laughs) So, so definitionally, if there's like, if there's been a handful of successful startups, like Atlanta, for example, has really been developing because some successful startups happened there and those guys left and made, well, first some of them became investors, right? And other ones, you know, started their own companies. So it's kind of this cycle. And by the way, you need this cycle to make the system work. So I'm a big believer in the cycle. It's what was wrong with France and business objects, by the way, anyone who's successful business objects left France, probably for tax reasons, probably maybe for other reasons. I don't know why, but I can tell you, most of the people I work with on that team to help build that company from zero to billion dollars were not in France after they left and and that's the big difference in Silicon like Valley or in the states or in Atlanta now or New York or presumably in Tallinn as they're starting to build their ecosystem. you stay and you give back to the system. so so I believe that you can get these hubs of technology talent, or these clusters, as you sometimes call them, of industry talent um, in universities. So I, I think two things help. Obviously, Silicon Valley has both prior successful companies and great universities. And I would say that universities are kind of funny about where they're good at. Like for, for reasons I do not understand, University of Wisconsin is really strong in databases. They're strong in computer science in general, but very strong in databases. Right? I don't know how that happened. It's Dave DeWitt. I don't know DeWitt. Who, who knows? But but they they're strong. So if you want to make a database company, Wisconsin might be a good place to do it, right? Or put, or at least to put core engineering, right? France in the 90s were really into AI well before anybody else. All, all the CS majors in France had like AI degrees, uh, which weren't terribly useful in the mid 90s, but France was really good at AI. I hope they kept the emphasis up <laughs> uh, because now we have the data to make AI useful. Um, so there's a big, I would argue, a big cluster in France of AI expertise in the universities. So as I talked about on the board of the Estonian company, Called Squirrel that does work management. And, and I'm watching a cluster in formation because companies like Bolt and Pipe Drive, Katana are there. They've been successful companies. And now they're kind of the, uh, the grain of sand in the oyster that's becoming a cluster in talent. So I think in general, We're going to see more distribution into hubs and clusters. And I haven't given you a great definition of the difference, but let me me try. A hub to me is a place where a company decides to put people for whatever reason. And a cluster is really an industry cluster where it's not about a company. It's about the industry. And wow, there's a lot of good database people in Wisconsin. Or wow, there's a lot of really experienced entrepreneurs and talent. So let me be a little more precise there.
0: Dave, you helped popularize SaaS as a delivery mechanism, and it spawned some interesting column business models or maybe routes to market, things like consumption-based pricing, even kind of PLG as a a pattern couldn't have existed without SaaS as a delivery mechanism. Has that wave crested, or what's ahead in 2023 for maybe pick those two patterns, consumption-based pricing and, and PLG?
1: So, look, um, on both those trends, well, first, on consumption, it always reminds me of the Warren Buffett quote, you know, when the tide goes out, you can see who's swimming naked. And, and on the consumption model, swimming naked is very simple. Do you have ratcheted contracts or not? Because if you're a consumption purist and revenue is just linked to consumption, and there's then you will get exposed during a downturn where usage drops. So you better hope that usage keeps going up despite the downturn. Uh, which it will for some categories, but it will definitely not for other categories, right? Um, now, most sales forces are run by pragmatists who put ratchets in the contracts. So the price can go up and not down. And we're going to basically, in the next year, we're going to very quickly figure out who, who has which type running. Because uh, some people are going to be missing quarters saying, hey, consumption was down, there's nothing we can do. And others will be coming in the low end of their guidance because they knew that it was locked. They knew what was locked, uh, and they didn't get any overages. But but, but locked means locked. So I, I think we'll see that. Um, I think on PLG, you know, PLG is a great thing in general. I like it. It's an old idea. The kind of Johnny Appleseed business model is not a new idea. Crystal did it through indirect channels. Heck, University Ingress was open source in the early 1980s, right? Anybody could download it and run it. There was no monetization model. But but this, hey, just try my software idea has been around for a very long time. Uh, and people are getting better at monetizing it. Cloud makes it easier. There's a bunch of new things. But, but the basic idea of let the software try to sell itself has been around for a long time. And, and I think it works really well in certain categories. The, the problem I have with both these ideas they there's only one thing that really ties them together, which is the VCs like them. <laughs> so, VCs are saying, like, hey, you got to have consumption pricing. Hey, you got to have a PLG motion. Um, and I think that's a general dangerous because I think small companies really should have a very focused strategy and they shouldn't be kind of throwing bone to VCs and throwing bones to VCs and running experiments about the latest trends they should be trying to execute their business model. So I, I think the bloom will come off the rose on consumption because I think consumption will go down in many categories. And I think in PLG, you know, um can't remember, I think it's Thomas Tungas wrote a blog post that did some analysis and said, hey, PLG is not necessarily a more profitable business model because I think w- one of the premises that got people excited about PLG was, oh, the product sells itself, therefore lower CAC, therefore more profitable. And I don't think that actually – comes out in the wash when you actually run it And the short answer i have is gosh i wonder how we got people to do all those trials anyway oh marketing right so in any case i think some of the bloom will come off the rose i think they're both good ideas i think they'll both be with us but i think probably much the relief of founders uh vcs will perhaps be uh pushing them down your throat with with less vim and vigor
0: we did very comfortable throwing around acronyms for those who aren't familiar. PLG, product-led growth, the uh, high-velocity route to market, typically a low CAC, customer acquisition cost, and certainly, uh, you know, a modern way of thinking about taking uh, software to market. Now, Dave, I thought that you say generative AI three times fast, and uh, and that's what uh, attracts lemmings. Is generative AI the Web three of twenty twenty three?
1: You know, I, I don't think that analogy works, Dan. It, it, let me tell you why. I think first today generative AI is is a, a part of a trick, a darn impressive part of a trick, but a part of a trick. Like when you first see it, and you tell Chat to write you a love poem in the style of Robert Service or Kurt Vonnegut, uh, and it does it, and it's not bad. You're like, wow, this is amazing. Um, but the problem is, you play with it for another two or three hours, and you kind of see the patterns, you see how it works. So, as a first impression, it blows your socks off. Play with it for two more hours, and uh, your socks will, will will be on again. So, I, I do think it's a kind of a party trick today, but it's a long way from done. Right. And that's the important part. Web three is very different to me. First, as discussed above. It meant a lot of things. Crypto, blockchain, NFTs, DAOs, DeFi. Some of that was pure hype. Some of it was profiteering. Some of it was real, uh, as mentioned earlier, particularly, I think, crypto. So uh, we got to kind of sort out the baby from the bathwater on Web three. But but generative AI to me is it's a very different situation. There's there's no bubble there. It's just a technology advancing and getting more powerful. I think, look, in general, the number of parameters in a large language model has gone up by a factor of 10 for the past several years. I know that GPT-3, I think, has 175 billion parameters. I think GPT-4 will have 170 trillion parameters, so a thousand times more uh compared to Microsoft's 17 billion, so 10 times less than GPT-3 uh for Microsoft's Turing NLG. So it's the thing that's hard is you often don't find performance of these models on any quantitative scale as a function of number of parameters, right? There's kind of no Moore's law yet that I'm aware of. But I have seen some data that says even when you're 10 to the 14th, which is 170 trillion, you're improving not only performance but capabilities. So so I haven't seen an objective measure of performance, but you're not just getting performance, you're getting capabilities as well. So long story short, I think it's early days. I think there's a lot of headroom for improvement. And so I think they're not they're not the same. Uh, I think one is a post bubble wreckage, uh, and the and people are going to try and find what's really valuable in there. And the other is early days,
0: impressive new technology, more Gartner's kind of peak of inflated expectations. Microsoft will shortly be incorporating Chat GPT driven results into Bing, which means potentially poses an existential threat to Google because. Bing will no longer provide a list of links to search res- uh, in form of search results but just an answer in response to an NLP or natural language processing driven query. Are we talking about a different Google in a year? So look, on,
1: on this search question, I don't have a great answer but my my instinct as somebody who ran a kind of hybrid search database company for for years, Mark Logic, is we should separate the front end interface the back end indexing. Because for me, at least, for most of my life, natural language is an interface into a database system or a search index. So, and t- so, so maybe with ChatGPT, it'll kind of assume both because what it comes down to is are you looking for links to resources, in which case we do care about indexing because we want to find all the resources out there and be able to link to them when they're the right answer to a question. Um, or do you just want answers to questions? Right. So and this is an age-old topic in search, you know, back in the day we used to talk about answer engines versus search engines. And we said, ah, the problem with search is you want answers that gives you links. And I think the reality is no, sometimes I actually do want links, and sometimes I want answers. Um, and, and you could argue today, by the way, that Google direct answers. You could ask Google what's three times twelve, and it will say 36 directly. It's not gonna give you a link. Uh Google featured snippets, you know, if you say what is an MQL, you you'll get a definition as a featured snippet in the right-hand column. So they both answer. So Google has some ability today to answer questions. People are kind of acting like, hey, Google can't answer questions. It's like, no, Google can answer a lot of questions. Um, you know, Ask Jeeves had an answer engine. I'd argue that for math questions, Wolfram Alpha is already an answer engine and a, and a really cool one uh, if you haven't used it. Uh, in e-commerce and travel, I'm not sure I want answers. If, I, if I'm if i looking for size 12 flip-flops, I, I'd love to see a set of flip-flops like Google Shopping, or if I want a flight to Baltimore, I think I'd want to see a list of flights, like Google Flights. So I don't know. I don't think it's as simple as you know the, the rhetoric I'm hearing that you know, chatbots eat search. I just don't think it's going to happen. I think sometimes you want links, and sometimes you want answers. I think you want links more than you want answers, uh, and by the way, in terms of whether it's going to eat Google, because there's two questions really. One is it going to eat Google and the other is, is it's going to eat search. Um, and it may eat search, but it's not going to meet Google. It's eat Google. It's you know, They have pathways. It's not like Google is ignoring AI at all. So I think the answer ultimately is likely both, right? This is not an either or choice.
0: You are, as you've mentioned, a database guy and certainly a, uh, a professor of all things data and, and metrics. Over the past year, we've seen a phenomenal rise, 18 months, maybe, maybe 24 months even, of a whole new uh, set of innovative companies that have spawned new innovation related to data and metrics, analytics, certainly, you know, your former space BI, uh, what, what innovation is there in 2023 that will further kind of amplify or increase the accessibility of better metrics? So
1: let me start this one with an interesting observation about the data market, which is people, it is, data is full of interesting ideas, like the semantic layer or metadata management. But but in my experience, people don't buy interesting ideas. They actually buy the tools that come with them. So the tool in some ways is the carrier for the payload, right? Like Business Objects was a tool. And it was an okay tool, but the, the payload was the semantic layer. Um, and, and in some ways, you know, Elation is it's a data catalog In some ways, I feel like the catalog is a tool or an interface into the metadata management, which was the concept. But it was very hard. Like There were metadata management vendors before data catalogs. and They didn't do particularly well, whereas you bring the data catalog along, and you kind of attach the metadata management to a tool that's useful, and now people can do things with it. So I always feel like in data, concepts by themselves don't sell. They sell best when you say... I've got this cool concept called a semantic layer. Let me show you how I can leverage it in a query tool called business objects. Or I've got this really cool way to manage metadata. Let me show you how it works is a tool called elation. So I've always thought that's an interesting kind of observation about the data market. Um, And I don't know if that's going to change going forward because, look, I do think there's a new concept that's emerging. and, And I know what the concept is. I'm not exactly sure what it's going to end up being attached to when it sells. But but the concept is kind of a second generation semantic layer. Uh, you know, business objects, we, we pa- pioneered and patented the semantic layer. Uh, and the idea the name of the company, business objects, was, was had nothing to do with object orientation. It was supposed to be that you could manipulate business objects in your query. Go read DBT's semantic layer materials. It's the same thing. It's like we want to create business objects. Don't call them exactly that. But basically, we want to create business objects that, you know, from your transformation layer on down are consistent. And we were trying to create business objects that in your query layer kind of on up were consistent. Um, But it's very similar. Uh, And I think ultimately what the world really needs is kind of unified second generation semantic layer that is kind of cross everything. Because the problem with business objects and similar tools were it was kind of one database at a time or one data warehouse at a time. So so it, it did not, in particular, federate uh, either across instances or across technologies, right? So, But here we want to be cross everything. I'd like to use my cloud sources as well as my on-prem sources. I'd like to do it across data storage DBMS type. Basically, I'd like it to, to be able to index Hadoop and index Oracle and index Snowflake. and So, so I'd like it to be kind of cross DBMS, slash storage mechanism, Mongo, uh, I'd like to be cross asset type. You know, people don't just search for data anymore. If I'm trying to answer a business question, it's great to get a database or a data warehouse, but it's also great to just get somebody's Tableau visualization that answers it. Um, so I'd like this semantic layer to understand asset types uh, and be able to help me say not just where can I can find a piece of data, but 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 where where can I actually answer this question? Is there an asset out there already that does so? Is there a business objects report, or is there a liquor dashboard, or is there a Tableau visualization? Uh, that does this for me. So in reality, uh I think this people are talking about this second generation semantic layer. They're not all necessarily using that exact term, but the idea is out there. Uh maybe it will be headless and without a tool and standalone. I don't think so. That would break with the past pattern. Maybe it'll come with your data catalog like Galation. Uh, they could certainly build a metrics layer if they wanted to. Uh, Antilation is cross a lot of things. I wouldn't quite say cross everything, but they're cross a lot. They run a lot of different sources and they federate information and, and metadata well. Uh, maybe it'll come with a transformation workflow engine like dbt. And maybe it'll be kind of a more of an infrastructure thing to say, Hey, whenever you say this, you know, revenue uh, across all these sources transformations, this is what it means. And, and I guess the query tool could, could work on that too, in theory. Uh, one that's talked about less is notebooks. Maybe it'll come with your notebook. Maybe, maybe Hex, right? Uh, will will be the place where that semantic layer lives, because that's where a lot of your analysts are building their notebooks, which are really the kind of first generation data apps that are out there, um, or maybe it'll come with more than one of those. It's possible that, that, that you know, oftentimes in data land, you, you don't end up with just one, <laughs> that that you'll have one at multiple different layers, which would be disappointing at some level, uh, but, but quite probable in terms of just how data evolves. But in any case, look, I think this is going to be
0: a hot topic in data analytics in 2023 for sure and, and, and beyond. For anyone aspiring to be a data scientist, replay that one because, wow, there's a lot of, a lot of insight in that answer. Thank you, Dave. That was really a that was interesting. I, gosh, we're we're out of time. I said these things always fly by, and we let this one go way over time, which I'm glad we did. Let these topics marinate until we get you back for uh, for next year's predictions episode. But I'm I'm not letting you off the hot seat without uh, answering one last question. For me, you and I are both deadheads, and last year, sadly, you had to uh, miss Dead and Company playing in Mexico, but. But the tour returns next weekend. So first question, are you going to be in Cancun? And then uh, if so, or even if not, what is uh, what is your year in music look like for
1: 2023? Yeah, yes, yes, Dan, I am headed to Cancun uh, for... for- people who don't know uh if you've ever heard of the Grateful Dead uh John Mayer now plays with them in the lead guitar role so so the, the company the band Dan's talking about is called Dead and Company and it's basically got John Mayer in the seat of Jerry Garcia and about three original Grateful Dead members and a couple of new new folks um and yeah and, and this is as Dan certainly knows their their final tour touring with John Mayer is this spring so uh Given that I'm semi-retired, Dan, yeah, you won't be surprised to see that I'm signed up for 14 shows between now and mid-July. Maybe a couple too many, but that's that's what I have the tickets for right now, and and I'm looking forward to seeing you at the San Francisco shows.
0: Amazing. Well, uh, certainly, before a year goes by, we're gonna have to catch up on uh on the year in great music. That'll be an, on another podcast. Well, uh, <laughs> that's the great Dave Kellogg. We're gonna uh, we're gonna have to sign off for now. Even though, uh, gosh, I'd like to continue this one for a while longer. But Dave, thanks as always for hanging out. This is so much fun. Thank you, Dave. As always, uh, I'm your host, Dan Turchin of AI and the Future of Work. uh, Of course, we're back next week with another fascinating guest.